welcome to this Pulmonary Rehab Assembly podcast where Dr. Peter Thomas and I are going to discuss a new clinical guideline on the physiotherapy management for COVID-19 in the acute hospital setting. It's due to be published in imminently in the Journal of Physiotherapy. My name is Claire Nolan. I'm the director of the Pulmonary Rehab Assembly Web Committee and a researcher from Harefield Hospital in the UK. Our guest on this podcast is Dr. Peter Thomas, the first author of this guideline. He's a consultant physiotherapist and team leader in critical care and general surgery at the Department of Physiotherapy, Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, Brisbane, Australia. Welcome, Dr. Thomas, and thank you for providing your expertise for this podcast. Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, Coronavirus 2, is a new coronavirus that emerged in December 2019 and causes Coronavirus Disease 2019, or COVID-19. Already the world is dealing with the pandemic as the virus has spread to 190 countries. As of the 23rd of March, the World Health Organization reported that there are almost 335,000 confirmed cases with 14,000 confirmed deaths. Individuals with COVID-19 can present with an influenza-like illness and respiratory tract infection, demonstrating fever, cough, fatigue, sputum production and or shortness of breath. The spectrum of disease severity ranges from an asymptomatic infection, mild upper respiratory tract illness, severe viral pneumonia with respiratory failure and or death. Current reports estimate that 80% of cases are asymptomatic or mild, 15% of cases are severe, that means an infection requiring oxygen, and 5% are critical requiring ventilation and life support. At present, the mortality rate is 3 to 5%, with new reports of up to 9%, with rates of admission to intensive care at approximately 5%. The guideline produced by Dr. Thomas and co-authors relates to the physiotherapy management of people with COVID-19. And Peter, before we start, can you please outline what you mean by the term physiotherapist, as I know different countries use different terminology? Yeah, thanks, Claire. Um, in Australia, physiotherapists are a common part of the intensive care multidisciplinary team. Uh, a large part of the role revolves around providing mobilisation and exercise within the ICU. And whether you're a patient admitted after major surgery, uh, trauma, brain injury, transplants, uh, or an exacerbation of COPD or for a neuromuscular condition, uh, really regardless of your diagnosis, uh, a physiotherapist is generally there in that Australian ICU, uh, reviewing ICU patients and determining the most appropriate form of, of exercise or, or mobility to provide. So this can uh, involve bed-based exercises and ensuring our patients achieve milestones like sitting out of bed, standing and walking as soon as possible, uh, whether the patient's still ventilated or not. Uh, we also still have a role in the respiratory management of our ICU patients. And in these patients, uh, we'll assess the requirements for airway clearance techniques, which for non-ventilated patients might involve techniques like positioning, active cycle of breathing, positive pressure therapy. Uh, physio departments will often also have a range of therapies that might include uh, equipment like non-invasive ventilation, um, IPPB or inspiratory positive pressure breathing, and your mechanical insulation exhalation devices. For ventilated patients, techniques like manual hyperinflation and ventilation, ventilator hyperinflation are also often used and we're often integrated in the management of patients with a tracheostomy. 
Great, that's really comprehensive. So uh, for the audience to understand, there's a role in the respiratory care and the, the mobilization of physical rehab of patients. So that brings me to the guideline itself. Can you tell me about the background to the development guideline and its purpose? I know this is something that uh, you and your team have worked really hard to put together in a short period of time. Yeah, well, the COVID-19 pandemic is obviously a type of event most of us have never had to deal with before. Um, and hearing the impact that COVID has had in China and Italy and other parts of the world really made me start looking for information uh, to start preparing within my local hospital. So as a senior clinician, I want, want to be able to guide staff using the best information available and provide advice that is practical and specific for our workplace. Um, among the many resources available, I found that there wasn't really any single resource that was suitable for physios and started collating a lot of the information from um, other relevant documents. Uh, in Queensland, the development of this document was supported by a range of uh, colleagues uh, within a group called the Queensland Co-Respiratory Physio Network. And around the same time, I was fortunate to be invited to join a group of 15 experienced clinicians and academics from Australia, Belgium, Canada and the UK who are also interested in providing information for physios about COVID. Uh, ultimately, through the two of these collaborations, we produced the paper on the physio management of COVID-19, specifically around the, in the hospital, um, acute hospital setting. So in it, we provide recommendations for the preparation of physio workforce, uh, a screening tool to determine the requirement for physiotherapy, and recommendations for the selection of physio treatments. Um, and also, obviously, it's very important um, role in terms of making sure we know about our personal protective equipment. Great, thank you. What methodology did you use to formulate the guideline and are your recommendations evidence-based or best practice guidelines? Yeah, Claire, initially the guidelines um, were produced through collation of information gained mostly from uh, recent practice guidelines around infection control and we've had some local uh, sort of interim infection control guidelines specific to COVID released by my hospital and the health service that I'm a part of. Um, but there's also national infection control guidelines. Um, we've also seen in a very short space of time, um, various agencies react and provide more uh, guidelines. So in the space that we've been working together, uh, the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society uh, produced some guidelines uh, related to intensive care in Australia. And the World Health Organization have also um, put out documents and the European Society of intensive care medicine. So we um, sort of cross-checked and looked for information within those documents. Um, we're looking for consistency in information um, and also anything that might have relevance uh, specifically to physio. For physio-specific recommendations though, there isn't really a lot of information to guide us. Um, so we've considered information, particularly around within the me uh, medical documents around aerosol generating potential of various interventions and then considered how that applies to physio. Uh, so because of that lack of evidence, we've um, relied more on a consensus process amongst our international group. And we went through each of the recommendations and decided uh, or looked for a greater than 70% agreement for each of the recommendations that we've made. So um, without specific research, obviously it isn't a perfect method, but we do feel it provides some validity to the recommendations that we can make now. However, there's a lot that we just don't know about COVID. And in Australia, we're still very, very much in the early stages of our exposure with just over 2,000 presentations. So we may need to revise the document as we learn more through experience. 
Thank you. And if we go on to the meat of the guidelines next, it's divided into two sections. The first section is workforce planning and preparation, including screening to determine indicators for physiotherapy. And the second is delivery of physiotherapy interventions, including both respiratory and mobilization or rehab, as well as personal protective equipment or PPE requirements. If we start off with the first part of the first section, can you summarise your recommendations for the workforce planning? Yeah, the workforce planning section um, tries to address several components that can be applied to times when rapid changes in your workforce are required. Um, the first is around ensuring that you actually have a, the workforce numbers. And we've heard how workforces can be dramatically reduced due to staff exposure to COVID themselves. Um, or having to prioritise responsibilities, for example, to family as we start think, seeing things like school closures. Um, so increasing staff through doing things, looking at um, you know, potential of additional shifts from part-time staff, um, staff ability um, to electively cancel leave, recruiting from casual staff, um, and uh, you know, we've seen academic staff and research staff returning to clinical roles as well. Um, so just providing advice and information around uh, practical elements like that. Um, we've also seen for many outpatient services, uh, we're seeing those close or wherever possible um, offer changes in the way that services are delivered, for example, adopting telehealth models. And uh, we're seeing um, evidence of that happening throughout the world, which is exciting and reflects the, you know, the technology that we have these days to be able to respond. Um, for acute staff, it might also be looking at um, options like shift patterns, and we are hearing about um, people changing their shift patterns and increasing or extending uh, evening shifts in particular, depending on the demand uh, for physiotherapy treatments and other roles that they might take on during this time to support the health workforce. Um, the next aspect within the uh, this workforce planning is around preparing the staff in terms of education making sure you have the right staff in the right place. So for intensive care physiotherapy, um, physiotherapists really are required to have specialised knowledge and skills and decision-making to work in that area. And in Australia, we'd really consider that this needs a degree of education and orientation within the ICU environment to make sure we're familiar with that environment and can provide safe interventions. COVID has placed enormous strain on critical care beds and we need to bolster this workforce. So um, staff who don't necessarily have recent cardiorespiratory experience um, might actually help to support other areas of hospital services and allow staff with experience to be mobilised and support um, our critical care workforce or cardiorespiratory workforce. Um, we also want to be able to protect our workforce and the guideline provides recommendations around staff who might be at increased risk of um, becoming exposed to COVID due to their age or chronic health conditions. And the last component is protecting our staff physical and physically and psychologically. So this involves strategies, for example, around ensuring PPE education is supported and started early, and managing the movement of the workforce between infectious and non-infectious areas. Uh, we also like people to consider the emotional well-being of staff in this stressful time and promote debriefing and psychological support. Thank you. And can you provide a brief overview of the screening of patients to determine whether physiotherapy is indicated? Yeah, so the respiratory infection associated with COVID is mostly um, a dry, non-productive cough and lower res respiratory tract involvement 
um, usually involves pneumonitis rather than exudative consolidation. So these patients may not uh, be particularly productive. Um, and the indications for physiotherapy in these cases uh, isn't high. So we are uh, emphasizing that physiotherapy isn't uh, necessarily required in a lot of uh, patients with COVID. However, respiratory physio might be more um, appropriate in your hospital wards or ICU if patients are suspected or confirmed COVID um, have a subsequent uh, exudative consolidation or mucus hypersecretion, or it's noted that they're having a lot of trouble uh, clearing their secretions. So physiotherapy interventions, what we're saying is really should only be provided where there are these definite clinical indicators. Um, so that staff exposure to patients with COVID-19 is minimised. The other thing obviously we're hearing around the world is the shortage on PPE. So one of the um, reasons behind some of these recommendations is also ensuring that staff aren't uh, wasting PPE by doing unnecessary screening uh, or entering patients' isolation rooms uh, where they may not have a significant role uh, in the management of that patient. So we've tried to provide recommendations on how to look for clinical indicators for patients who might benefit from physiotherapy. And we advise um, on initially trying to do some screening uh, that involves some mutual decision-making between a senior physiotherapist and medical staff and some sort of agreed guideline within the workplace. Um, of course, physiotherapists are gonna have an ongoing role in providing interventions for mobilization and exercise and rehab, uh, which is a component of our, our care. And this is gonna be particularly in patients with comorbidities uh, significant functional decline, or maybe at risk of ICU-acquired weakness. Um, so we provide some recommendations on how people will prioritise this. Great. And if we move on to the second section now, the guideline, can you discuss the physiotherapy intervention section? Yeah, so the respiratory, uh, the physiotherapy interventions is broken up into two sections, um, and that's uh, the first is around respiratory care, and the second around is your mobilization, exercise, and rehab. Um, for the respiratory care, many of our interventions are potentially aerosol generating. Um, so while we said earlier there's insufficient investigations confirming um, the actual aerosol generating pro properties of a lot of our techniques, um, the combination alone of the fact that we're often trying to clear secretions and getting patients to cough and expectorate those secretions means that pretty much all the techniques at some stage will um, be exposed to that and essentially are aerosol generating. So because of that risk, um, we are ensuring that physiotherapists really consider the techniques that they do use and weigh up the risk versus benefit in providing those interventions um, and to utilize airborne precautions specifically whenever providing uh, respiratory physio. For um, practical elements as well, just the equipment that we take into people's rooms. Um, obviously, uh, if equipment goes in, if it's reusable equipment, we'd have to find out whether we can actually clean those items appropriately. But we would recommend in the first instance, in part of your reasoning is uh, to actually go through and try and find equipment that might be single patient use um, and disposable and use those preferentially wherever possible. Uh, for techniques like manual hyperinflation, uh, for the ventilated patient, um, aerosol generation is results from disconnection of ventilator circuits, so it's a technique that is definitely not recommended. Um, but you may be able to look at options like ventilator hyperinflation in these patients. 
um, particularly if they're presenting with um, sputum as a retention and separative presentations. Um, we're also seeing prone positioning being used a lot and re being recommended for these patients. And the role that physios might have in providing prone positioning may vary, but certainly we're very good at annual handling. Uh, we're often doing other uh, positions and in some units, uh, people will all already be helping with the implementation of prone. So physio physios might be continuing with that. Uh, they may be providing leadership within prone teams or providing staff education, utilizing simulation-based education to try and teach teams how to use prone. Um, and then practically implementing it as well. Thank you. And can you summarize the mobilization rehab section? So we've been really lucky um, in some of the guidelines that have been produced that physiotherapy and mobilization have been included. Um, so early mobilization is encouraged and in the WHO's um, documents, we've actually got it reported that active mobility uh, for these patients in the course of illness should be encouraged when it's safe to do so. So uh, physiotherapists uh, will be actively screening and accepting referrals for mobilization, exercise and rehab. Um, and again, we wanna make sure that we are um, doing appropriate interventions and probably intervening when our patients require a little bit more of uh, our assessment and skills. So we recommend things like um, screening and discussing with nursing staff, or the patient via a phone or an internet connection uh, or with their family and trying to make decisions around what um, interventions may be required or may not be required prior to actually entering the patient's isolation room. So uh, physio not screen uh, and decide on appropriate aid to trial. Uh, a trial that aid might be performed using staff who are frequently going in and out of that patient's room or within that patient's room. And then guidance could, for example, be provided from outside the room if needed in them. And if that was sufficient, that would be fantastic. So only where there's significant functional limitations, uh, for example, frailty, multiple comorbidities, advanced age, um, should the requirement for direct physio interventions be considered? Uh, again, we've tried to raise people's attention about considering which equipment they're using and um, trying to minimize the movement of equipment in and out of rooms uh, wherever possible. Um, equipment obviously needs to be properly decontaminated. Um, one of the things that we've also identified through doing the guidelines is just around recommendations and what patients should be doing for um, their mobili mobility in terms of protective wear. And um, masks are generally recommended. Um, you will see variation as to if patients in an isolation room, whether they need to wear a mask or not, but certainly for movement of um, patients within a hospital, then a um, standard surgical mask is um, ideal um, for those patients to wear. There are some thoughts that mobilization alone um, can be aerosol generating. So we are recommending that if anybody's doing um, mobilization with patients in their room, or um, if it is in a cohorted area and you're moving around, that patients might still wear a face mask. You said earlier on that um, mobilization or rehab could take place when it's safe. Do you have any specific guidance on, on what you mean by safe or is that just clinical judgment? Yeah, look, I, I do think um, it is clinical judgment, but there is um, 
I guess lots of guidelines that are available around safe mobilization of your critically ill um, patients. So um, as patients are recovering um, uh, and over the acute um, period of their illness, then we would be looking at um, you know, progressing those patients based on their um, cardiovascular function, their respiratory function, and uh, seeing what we, we can do in terms of those limits. It may be too early to answer this question, but are there any data uh, from China or Italy or other countries where uh, COVID has been present for a longer time than Australia that patients with COVID experience or are at greater risk of experiencing um, ICU syndrome because of prolonged ventilation or a prolonged ICU stay? So at the moment, um, in terms of ICU acquired weakness, uh, I think it is a little bit hard to understand exactly um, the impact that COVID is having with our patients. Um, there are some reports that these patients actually uh, are liberated um, and don't, uh, from ventilation and don't have too much weakness. Um, there are some reports that um, even though they might be liberated and don't have weakness, um, due to the effects on their lungs, they are actually significantly desaturating with simple mobilization. Um, and that, that is something to be cautious of. Um, but in terms of the, yeah, the exact implications, certainly they're potentially at high risk because um, they are very unwell. They're um, often being proned and paralyzed to facilitate that with their mechanical ventilation. Um, so they're, they're certainly a group that we would consider potentially higher. But I think we need um, to be able to look at uh, data from UK and other areas, including Australia when uh, it uh, impacts on us more. And the last section relates to PPE requirements. You've already mentioned in the section on workforce planning how you were addressing minimising uh, the impact of PPE use amongst uh, people that don't need PPE. But can you talk about what this section covers, please? Uh, so in terms of our PPE, uh, it's been emphasised worldwide that your correct application of your PPE is one of the most critical things in protecting ourselves and trying to stop the impact of um, COVID on the healthcare workers. So we definitely emphasise that again uh, within this uh, document. Um, for the majority of our, our physiotherapy interventions, we emphasise that because of that aerosol generating potential, um, we will be required to do airborne precautions. Um, we also go through other uh, things that sometimes can get missed. Uh, so things like minimising uh, your personal effects and making sure you don't have your phone and pages and not wearing earrings, that type of thing, uh, ensuring that you do things like bare below the elbows. Um, we're also hearing varying reports. Um, so some things that don't necessarily come into guidelines, um, but you do hear about things like uniforms and whether um, you know, uniforms or the clothes you wear at work, um, whether it's safe to wear those on your trip home. Um, some countries wouldn't do that as a routine practice. Uh, in Australia, I would normally wear my uniform to and from work. So it's just trying to guide people or provide some advice that there may be changes in those types of things depending on the phase that we are with our responses. 
Peter, thank you so much for giving us an overview on this really important guideline. And I'd also like to thank all of the authors who were involved in the collation of this piece of work. It's a huge amount of work that I know was um, performed in such a small period of time. And I'm sure it could be really useful for the physiotherapy community around the world. On behalf of the Pulmonary Rehab Assembly Web Committee, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Thomas, for your insight, expertise and time. And please also extend my thanks to the authors involved in the collation of the guidelines. Thank you to our listeners. Take care and stay safe.